right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, let's welcome everybody. We, all our campuses are together this morning. Midtown, North Cobb, Hamilton Mill, online, people from Norway, from Canada, from Uganda. Come on, let's welcome everybody that's watching live from Atlanta, Georgia. I want to start this message by asking you a question. First of all, uh, let me just pre-warn you. I need you to have a sense of humor this morning. Are y'all okay? Because sometimes when people come to church, they're so, they're so righteous that they forget who they really were before Jesus, amen? So I'm gonna ask you a question and it's gonna seem very carnal. It's, gonna, it's not gonna seem to fit into the sermon, but there is a method to this madness. There's a reason why I'm asking the question. You'll find out later why I'm asking it. But let me just ask you this question. I want you to really think about this. How many of you, all of you at all the campuses, if you could, would like to be more attractive? <laughs> really? I'm physically attractive. I'm speaking physically attractive. If you could change some things about your attractive, how many, just raise your hand. You would like to be a little bit more physically attractive. Okay. Some people, no. I, I don't care. So they did a survey. I, I, was, I, was, I was interested in this because I, I was... I was, I'm, I'm a little bit strange. I was at the airport uh, not too long ago, and I was sitting there waiting on, the, on my plane. And for whatever reason, this idea just, idea just came through me. I'm sitting next to my wife, and I just, I just, just came through me like, how many people are attractive in the airport? <laughs> like, really? So I'm just sitting there watching these people go by, thousands of people go by. It was a sad, sad situation. <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, you... It was a You had people dressed in pajamas, <laughs> skin tight pants they could barely fit on. Their, 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 the seams were stretching. And you had people that had house slippers on. I mean, I see people like that come to church today. I, they, they, no, really, some of you may have dressed like that today. I don't know. I haven't been able to out there and look at you, but. The reality is, and they did, they did a survey in America about not too long ago about this, and they asked people in America, they said, how many people are really attractive? And, they, and, and here's what it said. They said, less than 1% are really attractive. Less than 1% are like, you gotta look at that person. Between seven to 8% are good looking, which leaves 92% of the rest of us. <laughs> That's just the sad reality of life. <laughs> now, here's what I know. I, I, I actually married the less than 1%. I, I, I did. I married the less than 1%. I, I, I'm, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm in the 92%, believe me. I know that. But I, I married the less than 1%. And they, so they asked they ask women, how, I mean men, I'm sorry, they asked men, how many women as a general rule do you think are attractive? And this was the survey, and, and, and all these men, of all the men that answered the question, they said 40% of women are attractive, 40%. This is what men said. Then they asked women, <laughs> how many men are attractive? 7%. <laughs> Come on now. All right, and then, then they asked the women, how many of you think you're attractive? 60%. 60% of women think they're attractive. And they asked men the same question. Sad, sad situation. Less than 10% thought they were attractive and they didn't care. <laughs> they don't care. All right, here's the thing. What I learned, because people ask me this, I, I've been walking down the street and people have actually walked up to me and said this to me. I'm not kidding you. They've said, how did you get her? <laughs> I like that question. And I realize it's not because you were physically attracted, it's because I was spiritually attractive. The reason my wife married me was not physical. It was spiritual. 
<laughs> and I said, it's going to get, that part could get worse as time goes on. But the spiritual part, this is something you can actually do something about, right? You can make yourself spiritually attractive. That's why you see some people in the, in the church, they're just, they don't look the, they, like they match up. But somebody, that, that, that guy must be really godly, or that woman must be really godly for that person to marry them. <laughs> I, I, I say this to people all the time because in church there is a little bit of mismatch in numbers. Usually there's more women in church than there are men. More women in church than men and more women are single in the church than men are single in church and they're looking for godly husbands. And I say this to guys all the time. I said, listen, there is no reason for you to be single. After, after 25 and you're still single, what's up? <laughs> and you know, you gotta live holy. You gotta maintain yourself. And what's up with that? And because literally, it, you could look like the hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> you read your Bible and pray, you're attractive to some women. <laughs> All right, y'all got a sense of humor. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, say, give yourself a hand clap. That's good. That's good. <laughs> All right, so we're in the Sermon on the Mount, believe it or not. We're going to get spiritual here now for a moment. We're in this Sermon on the Mount, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you. We're talking about the golden rule, but before I talk to you about the golden rule, I want to read a scripture that I think explains kind of what I'm talking about with spiritual attraction. It's in the book of Matthew in chapter five, and we're gonna have it up on the screen so you, you don't have to turn there. Listen to this. This is the New Living Translation in verse 13. And this is Jesus. And by the way, the Sermon on the Mount is the only sermon, lengthy sermon that Jesus preaches. There are times where he talks a long time to his disciples, but when he actually is preaching to the masses, this is, this is the main one. This is the, from chapter five to chapter, to chapter seven, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And, and if you're new and you're just visiting, we've been in this sermon for the entire year. Because he says at the end of the sermon, if you do these things, it'll be like you built your house on a rock. So that when the rains come and the floods come and the storms come, you'll endure the trials of life because your house is built on this sermon. It's built on life like this. And then he says this in the beginning. He says in Matthew chapter five, it's about spiritual attraction in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say that? You are the salt of the earth. I turn to your other neighbor and say it. Say that you are the salt of the earth. Some of you that are white, you're white people. We do this in this church. The black folk like to talk to each other during the sermon. And, Hispanic people like to talk to each other. White people, they are very silent, quiet. I'm just helping you. You need to loosen up a little bit. All right. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. In other words, if you aren't salty, you're not really worth much. You're not doing much for the kingdom. Then he says, you are the light of the world. Now turn to your neighbor and say that. You are the light of the world. Some of you white people are getting it now. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about what Jesus is saying, and he's really describing himself. Jesus is the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. If you wanna define Jesus, you can define him with those two words, salt and light. And to be salt and light is the definition of being like Jesus. Therefore, our definition of our lives must never be less than that. People need to see us as salt and light. And if you're going to be like Jesus, 
you're going to stand out in the world. You can't hide. You cannot, a true follower of Jesus cannot hide. They cannot escape notice. A person that's truly functioning as a Christian will stand out. So I want you to ask yourself right now, just ask yourself this question. Am I standing out? Am I standing? Now, when we say standing out, I'm not talking about you're some bold, brash person that everybody looks at all the time. I'm talking about you stand out for the character of Jesus that's shining and salting the earth, that when people see you, they see Jesus. That's the goal. That, I mean, truly, that's the goal of Christianity is I want to be more like Jesus. And the more like Jesus you are, listen to me, the more attractive you are spiritually. The more people are attracted to you spiritually. It doesn't mean everybody likes you. It doesn't mean everybody agrees with you. They're just going to notice you and they're going to be attracted to the influence that you bring in the earth. And he's telling us that as long as you're gonna live on this earth, you need to stand out. You need to stop hiding your faith. You need to be living your faith, and not just preaching your faith, but living your faith. So that everywhere, your job, your neighborhood, your family, whenever you walk in a door, you are salty and you are bright. People see you, they notice you. And some of you don't like that because you like hiding. You like hiding. You don't want to be noticed. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be the light. You want to be non-light. You want to be in the background. Well, now, you know, this whole Christianity, it's a private thing. No, it's not. It's not a private thing at all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. And have you noticed that people in the world don't make their views private? They make them very public. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go on social media. You'll see how public the world is with their opinions and their views. And as soon as you make your views known, you get attacked. You get attacked, so you bow back and you hide because I don't wanna be controversial. I don't want anybody to notice that I'm a Christian because if they notice, then I have to live it. I have to live it in front of people and people are constantly going to be comparing my character to who Jesus is. All right. See, here's what you need to understand. I'm trying to think of a good way of illustrating this so that you would remember this. And by the way, this whole sermon is gonna be filled with things I hope you remember because it's no good to just hear the message and forget it. You need to remember it. So I'm gonna tell some stories. I'm gonna tell some stories on myself that are gonna shock you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use some shock value this morning. But before I even get into that, let me just illustrate this because I asked the Lord, give me an illustration. So the Lord gave me this illustration of kind of what you need to be looking like when it comes to salt and light. So the best I could come up with was flowers. Everybody likes flowers. So I said, give me, a, give me some flowers. So, so they got, went out and bought some flowers. Aren't these pretty flowers? I got some flowers yesterday. Somebody sent us some flowers. Everybody likes flowers, they're beautiful. This, if we could just for a moment use this as an example, this is what you need to look like as a Christian. This is what you need to look like. So when you become a Christian, you come out from hiding. You come out from hiding your sin, you come out from hiding from people, you come out from hiding your personality, you come out into this place where okay, it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ Jesus who lives in me and through me. And if he lives in me and through me, this is what I look like. But what happens is many Christians don't do a good job with this. They end up living lives of sin, hidden sin, hidden lives. They're not sharing their faith. They're not living for God privately, but publicly they're expounding that they believe in Jesus. And here's what ends up happening. They begin to start to look like this. And what they don't know is that when they look like this and they preach the message of Jesus to a lost and dying world, it doesn't go over well. And this is the dilemma that we have in the church today. Too many Christians look like this instead of like this. They look like this. 
They're hiding sin. They're hiding their faith. They're hiding what God has created them to do. They're hiding their value. They're hiding their purpose. They're just kind of living and to blend into the world instead of standing out in the world. And then what ends up happening is they're not really good for anything. What are you gonna do with this? You wanna have this in your house? No, eventually what you do with this is you take it and you throw it away. As long as it looks like this, you can't throw it away. But when it looks like this, it's time to throw it away. Would y'all agree with that? That's what he said. He said, if you're not salty and you're not light, what good are you? You're not good for anything. You become in a place where people just trample on you. And this is the big dilemma we have right now in Christianity. The big dilemma is not Jesus. The big dilemma is Jesus' people. It's the people who say they believe in Jesus, but their life does not look like Jesus. Y'all all right out there? Now, how do we change that? Well, if you keep reading through the sermon, you see all these different things he tells us to do through the sermon. He, he says, first of all, you start living this be, these beatitudes. These are the attitudes of Christ. This is the blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we went through those at the beginning of the year, one of the most powerful sermon series that's ever been done at Victory. Pastor Johnson, Mo, Mo and Pastor uh, Chris and Pastor Darius all did a fabulous, would y'all agree they all did a fabulous job on that sermon series? And then we got into a lot of other things about how to live your life pure and holy sexually, how you keep yourself until you get married. And this is news to a lot of Christians that you're supposed to keep yourself pure in sexual areas of your life. And we went through, we had a whole sex series and it shocked some of us because we're living with people. We're having sex outside of marriage. We're same-sex attracted, and we think that God's okay with all that. And we've, we soon discovered that when we live like that, we start to look like this to other people. And then we learn how to handle money. And he says, where you treasure is, your heart will be also. If you're faithful over the unjust mammon that God puts in your hands, then you'll be unfaithful in life. And this is how God knows he can trust you, is how you handle money. And some of us got the, 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 the slack jerked out of us in the area of money. And we started learning that money's big deal with God. 2,250 verses, nothing is more talked about in the Bible than money. Then we just keep going and we learn how that when we have people that come against us that are enemies, that do bad things to us, that we still have to love them. We still have to care for them. We have to bless them even when they curse us. And then we just keep going and we kept going and we kept going and then we got into this last part of it where we're about judging others and getting the beam out of our own eye before we start trying to pull the speck out of someone else's eye. So many times we're judging people and we're not judging ourselves. And then he finally concludes it with this verse. And this is the verse of verses. It's the, what they call the golden rule. By the way, you know, we're in a series called The Golden Rule. Here's the title of today's message, The Golden Rule. I don't wanna make it complicated for you. And then he says, I'm gonna simplify this whole thing that I've been talking to you about this whole sermon down into one statement. Man, this is simple. By the way, let me just tell you something, the difference between theologians and communicators. Theologians take something simple and make it complicated. Communicators take something complicated and make it simple. Jesus is the great communicator. He's not trying to impress you with his knowledge. That's why he tells so many stories he interacts with everyday life, and he tells us how to live this life, and then he boils this whole thing down into this one statement in, in the book of Matthew, chapter seven, in verse 12. This is the New Living Translation. He says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all, everything that you've learned in the whole Bible, in the law and the prophets, I like the way the message reads it. He says, here is your simple rule of thumb, guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. Simple. Would y'all agree that's pretty simple? 
He's saying, when you start going through life and you're dealing with people, and by the way, we would, wouldn't we all love to not have to deal with all these people? I mean, you know, we, we're cool with God. I love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. I, I, yes, yes, I worship you, Jesus. Let's sing some, I'm gonna get up in the word. I'm gonna read the song, Psalms. I'm gonna sing to you, Jesus. I love you. How many of you know, it's not hard to love God. But then he says, and the second thing is like it. Just comparable to it. And I go, the second thing, love people as much as you love yourself. Love people as much as you love yourself. Now, now, now God, now, why do we have to bring people into this equation? <laughs> people are the problem. Can't we just go on and be, and way too many Christians love God, but don't love people. They don't love people. So he says, here's the, this, this whole thing that we've been studying, learning. The ser- Sermon on the Mount was boiled down to one simple statement. Take the initiative. What you want other people to do for you, do it for them. All right, so this is the challenge. This is the big gap right now in Christianity because most Christians don't do that. Most Christians want other people to do things for them that they're unwilling to do for them. Most Christians want these things, but then when it comes to giving those things, they have a hard time doing that. So he's saying, now here's how you cross over. Here's how you get into this place where you're attractive, where you have influence. If you want influence, so many people, I want influence. I want to be an influencer. I want to be a YouTuber. I want to be a social media influencer. I was looking at the top social media influencers, Chris. Cristiano Ronaldo is the number one influencer on social media in the world. I forget how many millions of followers he has. They said every time he posts a post, he makes between $580,000 to a million dollars for every post. Just has to post a post. I played soccer today, million dollars. <laughs> I blew a kiss, 500000 And so many young people, they just wanna be influencers. But they don't always want to be influencers for God. They spend a lot of time doing foolish things online instead of doing things for God. Listen, if you're going to get on social media and try to influence people, influence them for God. Don't try to influence them to be your followers. Try to be influencing them to be Christ followers. Like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at me as I follow Christ. Live like I'm living. Don't look at the goofy, stupid things I'm doing. Look at who Christ is. And so Jesus says, this is how you become an influencer is you look at what you want and then you just actively and initially go out and do it to other people. All right, so number one, number one thing. First thing you want people to do for you is you want others to value you. You want others to value you. There's nothing worse than to live with somebody who doesn't value you, to be married to somebody who doesn't value you. There's nothing worse than a parent, as a parent, to have your kids not value you anymore as they get a little older. Isn't it interesting how you do everything for them, but at a certain age, they just, you don't, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. All my friends, my 13-year-olds know more than you do. And they don't value you anymore. And value is a lost art in so many things. If you look at most of the trouble in the earth, it's the devaluing of humanity. All abortion is is devaluing humanity. That's all it is. And the cry of the lost, the cry of the hurting world, the cry of the social justice movement is nobody's valuing these people. And because they're not valuing them, we have all these trouble. So people have asked me this question. They've asked this, they said, how, uh, Dennis, how did you... Uh, Start a church with nothing, with like just a few handful of people and build it to this size and, and have all these different races in the church. How did you get black people to come? How did you get Hispanic people to come? How did you get Asian people to come? How did you get white people? How did you get people to come? And I thought about it deeply and it's not a complicated answer. I said, I think somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, and I think it happened almost three months into the church, God showed me that the way you influence for Christ, the way you grow something and attract people is you value people. And I, and I got tested. And by the way, 
You will be tested in how you value people. And God, God will look at how you handle that test. So my first test came about two months into the church. We had about six or seven white, lily white people in our church, young people. And I didn't have any friends, I didn't know anybody here. And in walks a black woman, middle-aged, visiting our church. I have no idea how she found out about us. We're in a daycare center. I have no idea how she found out about us, probably by accident, maybe. But she came in, she attended the church, and she liked it. And we talked to her after the service, and we talked to her, found out a little bit more about her. And she actually liked it to the point where she joined. She was the first black member of Victory. We had six whites and one black. Hold on. She became our tape minister. You, you, if you're under 40, you don't even know what a tape is. <laughs> but back in the day, we had cassette tapes. They were those little tapes that you put in a machine and you record the message. And then you make copies of it. And, and then people get in line and they pay $3 and buy it so they can listen to it again. But they really don't listen to it. They just put it in a box and it stores up. And now you have a box full of tapes after several years. Now everything's online, you can watch everything digitally, but back then you had to do it in tapes, and she made the tapes, and she was very faithful, and one Sunday she comes up to me very early in the church, and she says, Pastor, would you pray for me? And I said, what's, what's wrong, Gladys? And she said, I'm about to be evicted from my home. I said, what happened? She said, we have, I have some damage to my home, and I was getting some repairs uh, you know, uh, estimates, and the people that came in said, you can't live in this home, it's not safe, Electric, electricity is not safe, it's the way the, that it's wired, it's not safe and all these different things, and the water was not running right, and she says, I, I don't know where I'm gonna go because my family doesn't have any money, I haven't saved any money up, I don't know what I'm going to do, would you just pray for me that God will help me? Now, now when she said that, there, there's two choices I can make, I can pray for her, and send her on her way, which is what most people do. But what happened was she said that, I felt like the Lord said, take her into your house. You have a three-bedroom apartment. We had a three-bedroom apartment we were paying $420 a month for. (laughs) You young people don't know what it's like. $420 for a three-bedroom apartment. Are you kidding me? That's how old I am. (laughs) <laughs> my daughter was a three-year-old at the two-year-old at the time. She's in one bedroom. We're in the other bedroom. We have one spare bedroom. And I asked my wife, what do you think? Can we take Gladys in? She said, yes. And so I said, Gladys, you're coming to live with us. And you will live with us until we get your house fixed and you can move back in. We didn't know how long that was gonna be. But we, we were really wanting to, to have, you know, just get to know her a little better. So she came and lived with us and she became a part of our family. We had dinner together. She would to go off to work and come back. We would come back and talk about our day. We learned about her past, her life, the things she had been through, the trauma that she had experienced, the reasons why she was in the state that she was in financially, and so on and so forth. And I began to get some insight in what it's like to be a single black mother with kids that she's raised their life and is now on her own trying to make a way for herself without any help. And as we got to know each other, the Lord just kept telling me, she's grown up without value. Nobody's valued her. In society, nobody values that. Nobody looks at somebody like that and values that. And yet God sees her with a high value, an incredibly high value. And he said, you've got to learn, if you're gonna pastor a church, how to value people like that as much as you value people like yourself. And then he asked me this question. I've said this before, so be ready because this is a question you need to ask yourself. He asked me, he said, do you love black people as much as you love white people? Do you really love them as much? And I said to the Lord, yes, I do. I do. And the only reason I say that is because what you've done inside of me And you've taught me that no matter what race, no matter what culture, no matter what level of economic people live at, no matter what trouble they've had, no matter how bad they've been, you love them the same every single way that you love me. Listen to me. That's how come this church is what it's like. 
because we started teaching that in this church, not just us, but other people in the church, to value people of different races, different cultures, different economic levels, different heritages, different experiences, people who don't have it together and people who do have it together. We weren't gonna build a church all about one group of people that were Republican or Democrat or black or white. We weren't gonna build it on human culture. We were gonna build it on kingdom culture. And kingdom culture values every single person the same. You are valuable. You are valuable. And can I tell you something? When you value people, people are attracted to you. They are attracted to you. How else can you explain 145 different cultures all worshiping God under one roof every single Sunday morning? How can you explain that? But what it says is not necessarily everybody in the church values that. And we made a value decision. We made a value decision that we're gonna value that and people that don't value that probably won't come here, probably won't be attracted to victory. In fact, they might even be in victory now and they will leave because that's not a value of theirs. But I don't care. I would rather lose those people because I want people who value people, not people who are all about their race, their culture, their politics, their this, their that. I don't want a church of people that look like this. I want a church of people that look like this. And when you value people, you look like this. When you don't value people, you look like this. So that's the first sign. The second thing you want is you want people to have mercy on you. Now, how many of you have ever done something? Be honest now. Be honest, Midtown, Hamilton Mill, North Cobb. I'm looking at you. Be honest online, people. How many of you have ever done something that you needed mercy for? Let me see your hands. Let me see how many honest people are in the room. If you don't have your hand lifted up, what is wrong with you? I need to have mercy on you, don't I? All right, I'm gonna tell you something about myself. I don't think I've told this story before publicly, but I felt like the Lord told me to say this because you need to hear this about me and what happened and why I feel, feel this is important in this message. So when I was young, before Christ, BC days. How many of you have some BC days? I, all right. I had some BC days. I was uh, going to God's College, the University of Georgia. Last two national championships in a row. Working on a third one. Praise Jesus. Thank you. But when I was in college, I was not a Christian. I was not a Christian in high school or in college. And so... My first semester at the University of Georgia, I was living in Russell Hall, and I, I, I didn't have any money. I was a country boy, I didn't have any money. And I, didn't, I did not grow up drinking a lot or anything like that, so I didn't have much of experience with that. But I heard that, that, through the, my dorm that we were having, there was a bar down the street that was having nickel beer night. A beer was a nickel. I know, I know, that's how old I am. A nickel. <laughs> And it wasn't just for women, it was for men too. You know, you see these bars, free drinks for women, men, it's $10 a drink. Anyway, so I went there with some friends of mine in my 1967 Plymouth Fury that I had inherited from my grandfather. And this Plymouth Fury is this long car, two doors, but it was a long car, and it was just old and battered and and I bought it from him for $200. And it had a wheel bearing out in the left rear wheel so that when you drove down the road, it made a siren sound. Which was so cool because people would just get out of the way as you're driving down the road. It was awesome. It didn't go well in dates. You know, when you had dates and you had that going on. But, so, but when you're driving, and so people get out of the way. So I go to this beer night and I drink a dollar's worth of beer. One dollar. Your mind is calculating that up. How many, how many is that? I don't, it was a lot. And I was feeling good. And I had no connection to reality when I came out of that bar. I got in my car and I started driving. 
And as I'm driving out of the parking lot of this bar, I don't, I'm so bad, I hit a car. I hit a, a Volkswagen, and I hit it, and I'm just so out of, I just keep going. Hit and run. Now, I didn't hit a person, just so you understand this. I hit a car. It was a parked car. Nobody was in the car. I hit the car. I kept going. I drove through red lights. I drove up over the curve at my dormitory, down over the basketball court, down the hill, into the parking lot. Got out of my car, walked over to the girls' dormitory that I thought was the boys' dormitory, and passed out in the lobby and slept there all night. This is your pastor. This is who you are. This is who I am. Woo. Can you believe it? I got up the next morning. I remember sort of what happened. I went over to the car, and there were police cars all around it. And I come up, and this, the officer starts to ask me questions. Did you, were you driving this car last night? No, sir. No, I was not. What happened? Well, this car was involved in an accident, hit a car and took off. Well, how do you know it was a hit and run? He says, come here, young man. Pulls me up to the front of the car. He says, this car that was hit had a, had a side molding on it. You notice what's sticking out from the side of your car? It's that side molding. Sticking like that sword right in the car. He said, you need to go home, think about what happened here, and you're gonna have a meeting with the police officer on Monday morning in the office here, and we're gonna talk about this. So I went home, and I'm, I don't tell my parents. I went home, and I'm thinking, my life is over. <laughs> I, it's over. I, I'm not gonna be able to keep going to college. I'm, I'm probably gonna get arrested. I'm gonna have all kinds of problems. And, and I'm, what a stupid, how many of you just done stupid things? And I go back, and I go back to meet with this police officer, and I'm sitting down with the police officer, and the officer just simply, simply says to me, son, he says, what happened with this car? And I said, sir, I gotta be honest. I went to nickel beer night. <laughs> I had a dollar's worth of beers. And I hit the car as I was leaving and I was too inebriated to stop. It's my fault. He looked at me and he said, young man, he says, I was prepared to find you, arrest you, put you in jail. But because you told the truth, this is exactly what he said, I'm gonna have mercy on you. I'm gonna have mercy on you. He said, now you're still gonna have to pay for that young man's car that you hit, but you're not gonna be charged and you're not gonna be get a ticket and you're not gonna go to jail. But he said, don't ever do that again. I never did it again. But I walked away from there and when I became a Christian, God reminded me how many times God has had mercy on me. I found myself as a young man when I started in the church going to youth prisons. And I would go in there and I would talk to these young people and I would hear their stories of things that they did and why they were in prison. And sometimes they're sharing their stories and I'm thinking to myself, I've done a lot worse than that. And I've never been imprisoned. I've never been locked up. The only difference between me and you is you got caught. I'm gonna tell you right now, the only difference between you and people that are in prison, some of you, is you just didn't get caught. How many of you know that's true? You know that's true. I guess that's why Jesus said, when you go visit people in prison, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. In other words, no matter what people have done, you need to have mercy on them. There are laws, there are judgments, but you need to extend mercy. Be merciful. Here's what Jesus said. In the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. God blesses those, Matthew 5, 7, who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Luke 6, verse 36, therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. 
as you mete out mercy, it will be measured back unto you again. You're gonna have something in your life where you're gonna need mercy. And if you sow mercy, you will receive mercy, God says. But if you are constantly judging, constantly condemning, constantly criticizing, constantly talking about what's wrong with everybody else in the world but you, when it comes your time, no mercy. People who are merciful look like this. People who are not merciful look like this. You want people to have mercy on you. Third thing is you want people to serve you. You say, well, I don't know. How does that fit in there? Serve me? Oh, yeah, you want people to serve you. You do. You want people to serve you. As soon as you came into the church, if you had children, you want somebody to serve you. You want somebody to serve you out in the parking lot. Serve me. Take me. Show me where to park. Even if I'm not going to listen to you, show me where to park. <laughs> I found there's different kinds of people that drive. You know, there's some people that are very, you know, they're subservient. Yes, sir. Where do I go? And there's other words. Get out of my way. I'm coming through. I was dropping my granddaughters off at school the other day, and I get to do that every once in a while. And most of the people that are dropping their kids off are moms. They're moms. And I found that there's different kinds of moms. You got moms that get in the line, go through the line, get the children out, let you come in front of me. You go right in front of me. And then there's other moms, get out of the way. I'm in my big Ford 150 and I'm coming through. My children need to be first and I need to be the first out of the parking lot. Get out of my way. I was telling my daughter about that. She says, I'm one of those. <laughs> I have a Ford F-150. You pay people to cut your grass if you could. You pay people to, 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 to clean your house if you could. You pay people to take care of your children. You want people to serve you when you come to church. You want people to serve you in church. Find me a seat. No, I don't want to sit over there. I want to sit right here. This is my seat. Somebody's in my seat. Get them out of my seat. I, I always sit here. I want to park here. I want my children to be taken care of. I, I, I want people to greet me. I want people to love me. I went to that church. They were not very friendly. Were, were you friendly? Well, no, I'm, I, I, I'm new. I don't have to be friendly. <laughs> All right, so Jesus, Jesus comes on the scene, and they're, they're, the disciples are just struggling for position. They want to be served. They want to be served. They want to be big. They want to be important. They want to be an influencer. They want to be impactful. They want to be Mr., Mr., look at me. And Jesus makes this statement. It's a shocking statement. In the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 43, he says, 43 says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Can I tell you who the greatest people in the church are today? the servers. Right now, we're sitting here. You know what we are? You know what we are? Sitters. <laughs> we're sitters. We come to the church to sit. Now, not all of you have come to sit. You've already, some of you have already served in another service, or you're going to serve in another service, or next week will be your time to serve. So I'm not talking to you. But there are some of us here, there's some of us, we all we do is sit. And we want others to serve us. We like people serving us, but we don't like serving others. And so when God created the church, one of the things he did in the church is he tells the church, he said, when you go to church, don't be a sitter, be a server. Be a server. Because servers look like this to people when they come into church. Sitters look like this. Which one do you want to be in the church? Which one do you want to be in your neighborhood? Serving your neighborhood or having your neighborhood serve you? Schools, friends, family. When people come over for dinner and you work 
and you make a dinner for them, and they sit down, and you bring them the dinner, and you put out the dishes and the glasses, and you pay for the meal, and you serve them. Doesn't it bless you that when the dinner is over, they get up and help you do the dishes? Does that not bless you? Some of you go, I don't really do that. I like to just sit there and watch them do the dishes. My mother told me, she taught me, when you're at somebody's house and you have a dinner, you get up and you do the dishes. You take the dishes over, you serve, you make sure you're serving. Don't you let people outserve you. When you're married, don't you like it when your wife or your husband serves you? He tells the husband, you're the head of the house, you're the leader of the family. Guess what? You get to be the big server in the family. To be a leader, you have to be a server. To be the least in your house, you have to just sit and let others serve you. Y'all all right out there? It's awfully quiet. Is this a Presbyterian church? I mean, I've been in white Presbyterian churches that are quiet, but this is quiet. I've never been in a church with a many people of color that are so quiet right now. You know you folks of color, you like to talk during the sermon. You, you like to let me know how much you enjoy the sermon. White people, they, could y'all just tone it down a little bit? I want to hear what he has to say. <laughs> if it's not an amen, it's an oh me. <laughs> Every person in this church if you come to victory, you need to serve. Every person. Every person needs to serve. We served in a nursery when we first came to church, when we first started, not our church, but we were in another person's church. We served in the nursery for a year. Second year, we served in the two-year-old. Can I tell you, if you serve in the two-year-olds, ooh, let me put a crown on your head. Let me put a throne up on the stage and sit you there and show the people what kind of servant you are. Anybody who serves in the two-year-olds, and especially if they have a two-year-old at home where they're serving all week long, and then they come to church and serve a two-year-old while you sit, what? <laughs> Y'all all right out there? <laughs> Who's the greatest? The servant. You want others to serve you, so you serve them. The more you serve others, the brighter, the saltier you get. All right, so you want others to serve you, want others to have mercy on you, want others, others to, 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 to treat you with kindness, to mercy, and all these kinds of things. You want others to value you. What else? You want others to understand you. I was reading a book many years ago by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And this one habit just stood out in me, and I've preached it 100 times in this church, Love seeks to understand rather than be understood. Seek to understand people rather than be understood. What would it look like if this world would operate like that? What would it look like if a Democrat tried to understand a Republican instead of getting them to understand me? What would it look like if a Republican tried to get a Democrat to un understand what they're thinking of? I've sat down with people who are completely politically polarized for me, and, and I've talked to them, and I, here's how I have a conversation. Tell me why you believe this. Tell me how, ask questions rather than espouse your views and opinions. Learn to understand rather than be, what would it look like in a marriage if you're trying to understand instead of being understood? Men. What would it look like if you tried to understand your wife? I don't know. I've been trying to understand for the last 20 years. Can't understand a woman. How many of you know, behind every problem in our lives, there's something deeper. There's something inside that causes people to act up. And if we could just get to it, now let me give you a clue. Years ago when we started, grow, the church started changing demographics and, and, and many people moved out of this area and many new people moved in, a lot of the people that moved in here were from other countries, immigrants. And there's a lot of you that are from other, how many, let me just see, how, how many of you are from another country? Let me see your hands, a lot. Look at this, see, see how many people are here from other countries? You don't see many churches like that. And usually people from other countries go to churches from their country. If it's a Spanish 
group, they go to a Spanish church. If it's a Nigerian group, they go to a Nigerian church. Everybody has the tendency to do that. And for you to come to this church, that's amazing. Listen, this little white boy preached to you this morning. <laughs> but anyway, I've been sitting down. I've, I've gotten to know many of you personally. And as I sit down and I listen to you, sometimes I find out in the conversation, you're here undocumented. You didn't get documented. And now, because of that, you're, you're, you're risking being deported or you could be arrested or something like that. And then the, then, the, then the question comes to me, what do I do about that, Pastor? I wanna be documented, but I happened to come in after 9-11, and after 9-11, it became very hard for anybody coming in here to get documented. And so I had to come, I had to come because the country I lived in, I was, not, I was not able to survive in it. We couldn't economically survive. Our family couldn't make it. We were, we were living in abject poverty. We were living under a communist regime. We were living under a Muslim regime. We were living in bad situations. And so we came here to try to get away, to, to rescue my family. And we risked our lives coming across the border. And we went through this, this, and this to get here. And we, we finally got jobs. We finally did some things where we can live here, but we're undocumented. Do you still, do you still care about me? I said, absolutely. I said, here's, what, here's the way I look at people who are here undocumented. It's the government's job to enforce the law, and I believe in the borders. I actually do. I believe in borders. I believe that we should come through the country legally if it's possible. But I also understand that if you came here, it's not my job to enforce the law. That's the government's job. What my job to enforce is the law of love. Did you hear what I just said? The law of love, because something inside of me tells me that you are just as valuable as a legal immigrant, as a legal citizen. You are just as valuable as them. And the reason, the reason why many of us don't feel that way is because there's a problem with some people coming in from other countries to do harm to this country. And it's a few that make it bad for the masses. You know it's true. Just like a few doctors make it bad for the medical field. A few policemen make it bad for the law enforcement. A few preachers make it bad for the pulpits. But we don't judge the whole deal on a few. We look at the masses and say, let me understand your situation. Let me understand it. And I'm here to love you. If you get deported, I still love you. If you get arrested, I will love you. I will never stop loving you. I, my, main, my main role for you is to get you closer to Jesus. If I can get you closer to Jesus in this country or the country you go back to, that's my job. And if I can get you closer to Jesus and you go back to your country, be a missionary to your country. Be a missionary to your country. Don't ever forget that Jesus cares about you, loves you, cares for your family, and we care for you. When you act like that towards people, you look like this. When you don't, and you post on social media all these harsh comments about people who you don't even know, you don't even know anything about them, you look like this. You look like this. In the name of Jesus. That's how you look. I wanna win people to Jesus. Do you wanna win people to Jesus? I wanna win people to Jesus. There is the letter of the law and there is the spirit of the law. And I'm pretty sure Jesus loves people wherever they come from, even if they broke the law. Y'all all right out there? All right, and then finally, you want other people. You want other people to forgive you. Now I'm gonna tell you another story and then I'll close with this. <clears throat> This is, this is personal, but it, it happened to me about 20 years ago. I, I grew up in a home where my parents divorced when I was four years old. My father and mother, she, my father and mother, she got pregnant outside of marriage at 19 years of age, had me at 20. My father was 20, and he was not ready to be a father. He was not ready to be a husband. They had to get married back in those days, and you had to have children. You couldn't have abortions back then. Hallelujah. So I was born. But I was born into a family where my mother wanted me, but my father didn't want me. And so my father left my mother, and he ran off and did his own thing for many, many years until I saw him again later on in life. 
And I thought he didn't love me, I didn't think I didn't care, but he never told me he loved me, ever. And then right at the age of 63, when he's getting ready to retire, he gets brain cancer. And I get a call in the middle of the night, come up, he's having an operation, he may not live through it. So I get on a plane, I fly up there, I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I come into the hospital room, he's laying there, and he sees me and he breaks down and starts crying, and I said, Dad, I I, you know who I am, you know what I believe, you know what I stand for, you know I've shared this with you before. You're about to go into an operation, you may not come through it. I'm concerned about eternity for you. And I led him to the Lord. He prayed and received Jesus that night. He received Jesus in his heart. He would live six more months, and during the six months, we would, we would reconcile. And right towards the end of his life, he, was, he had a bout with pneumonia, he almost died, and I'm in the hospital with him one night, and I don't know if he's gonna live, and I, I'm, I'm rubbing his feet. I'm just rubbing his feet because that only thing could bring him some peace and comfort. And I'm talking to him, and I said, Dad, I, I need to tell you something. I, I, I need to tell you, I forgive you. And as soon as I said I forgave him, it just something broke on him. He just started crying. You could just see the weight of guilt and shame and things that he had done wrong in his life just kind of go off of him. And there was something about our relationship that just came together right then. I had every right to not forgive him for what he did. I could have held on to it. But the Lord had shown me years ago that when you hold on forgiveness in your heart, you are the one in prison. You're the one in prison, not the other person. And, and so when I forgave him, I went home and, and a, few days, a few days later, he would pass away. And I, I was just so relieved and the Lord, the Lord said, you know, as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, you need to forgive everybody all the time. There's never any instance, no matter what people have done to you, that you don't forgive them. It doesn't mean you trust them and you just go on in life like there's nothing happening, but you let it go. And one of the things that holds so many Christians in bondage and makes them look so unhealthy spiritually is unforgiveness that they're holding on to against somebody who did something really bad in their life. And instead of looking like this, this is what they look like. This is what they look like, and it's what they live like. You know if you have a family, you have to live in a perpetual state of forgiveness. You know that. You get married, you signed up, forgiveness every single day. Sometimes I lay on the pillow in my morning, and I say, Colleen, will you forgive me? She said, what have you done? I don't know. I'll do it later. Would you forgive me? I'm sure I'll do something. And men said amen to that. They know exactly what I'm talking about. You do 10 times more stuff than they do, according to them. <laughs> but to make, for a marriage to make it, you have to keep forgiving. When marriages don't make it, you know why they don't make it? They stop forgiving. They just stop forgiving. They start holding hard harboring ill feelings towards each other and they let it build up and it becomes a root of bitterness and it defiles them. And some of you could be sitting right here and you've got bitterness in your heart towards somebody and it's defiling you. It's hindering your witness. It's hindering your joy. It's hindering your life. It's making you look like the dead flowers instead of the live flowers. And you're not attractive. So Jesus says this. This is the last verse and I'll close with this. He says in Luke 23, Father, he's on the cross, forgive them. These people that have beaten me, mocked me, scourged me, put me on a cross, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they're doing. You have to make a decision at some point in your life that people that do these crazy things, there's a reason behind it that you just don't understand. There's a wound in their heart, a wound in their life, they've gone through stuff. People live out lives not based in the, in the current, they usually live out lives based on the past things that have happened to them in the past. And sometimes they become bitter people, they become angry people, they become frustrated people, they become abusive people, they become addicted people. 
and they do stupid things to other people. At some point, though, Jesus looks at every human being and says, Father, I'm hanging on this cross. I'm shedding my blood. I'm dying for every human being, the worst of the worst, the darkest of the darkest. And would you forgive every person on this earth for they don't know what they're doing? And when you come to Jesus, listen to me, he will always forgive you. He will never hold your sins up and say that what you've done is unforgivable. You will never be able to come to God. He says, all I'm asking of you is believe what I did on the cross for your sins so that you can receive my forgiveness. Because if you try to earn it through your good works, you will always fall short. But if you just receive it, and as much as I freely give it to you, give it to people. He would say this in, 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 in closing, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive you. If you're constantly holding on forgiveness, then you're positioning yourself against God instead of with God. When you live with a perpetual state of forgiveness, you become attractive, spiritually attractive. People are drawn to you because they believe you're merciful, you value them, you understand, they're trying to understand them, you're trying to serve them, you're trying to forgive them. When you live like that, when you live like that, you look like this. When you live the opposite, you look like this. All right, so all of you at every campus, which one are you? Which one are you? And if you're this way, listen, let me tell you something. God will still forgive you. He'll still love you even if you're looking like this. And all you really have to do is repent and ask God to forgive you. And you can go from this to this. You can reverse the process in your life. In the natural, you can't go from this to this, but in the spiritual, you can go from this to this. It's called being born again. And when you are born again, God, Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and transforms you into another person. Everything in the past passes away. All the shame, the guilt of everything you've ever done is wiped away by the shed blood of Jesus. Would you take a moment, a Selah, and close your eyes and bow your heads and think about that. Think about what I just said. God is offering to you a whole nother way of thinking, a whole nother way of living. As he's wrapping up this sermon, one of the key things he says is, I'm gonna simplify all the law, all the prophets, everything that they've been trying to teach you boils down to this one thing. Whatever you want other people to do for you, do it for them first. Have mercy on them, serve them, forgive them, love them, value them. But you can't do this till you're born again. You can't do this in your own strength. You have to have my Holy Spirit to do this. So if you're here today or you're in one of the campuses and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, this is your divine moment. This is the moment that God's been waiting for your entire life. And if you will do this, if you will surrender to him, all your sins will be forgiven. All your past will be wiped away from the memory of God's kingdom. And God will start a new life for you today. It's on the table. It's up to you. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you would like to do that, you'd like to receive God's forgiveness, his healing, his redemption, his salvation. You wanna start your life over again. You need your sins forgiven. I wanna pray with you, and all I want you to do is acknowledge that's me by lifting your hand. All across this building, every campus, lift your hand. That's me. I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. 
I need a new life. You can put your hands down. I'm gonna lead us in a prayer. And if you wanna pray this with me, this is your confession of faith. Say it with me. Jesus, right now, I repent of my sins. And I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me from all of my sins. I believe that you, Jesus Christ, are the Son of God who died on a cross and shed your blood for my forgiveness. Today, I believe you were raised from the dead and I ask you, Jesus Christ, to set up your throne over my heart, over my life, become the Lord and the Savior of my life from this day forward. In Jesus' name. Now let's just lift our hands to him. Lord, we lift our hands as an act of surrender, as an act of humility, as an act of brokenness before you, God, and we receive your forgiveness. We receive the grace of God. We receive your mercy. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come upon every person who is in that position to receive it and begin to fill them with the fullness of God. Drive out any demonic presence in their life. Anything from their past, wipe it from their life. And God, fill them with a new heart, a new joy to live for you for the rest of their life. To move from the hiding place to the place of light and salt from this day forward. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. God bless you.